Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello. Today is February 20th, and we have what I think is a pretty good episode. It's a topic I know I've been um, itching to bring up for a while because I'm cranky. Um, but, but, <laughs> True. But, but before we do that, uh, why, don't, why don't you give us the, the uh, rundown? Hooray. All right. So it is the week of February 20th, obviously, which means that this Thursday, mm-hmm. this Thursday, our first Pages episode goes live. So it will be coming online for our Patreon subscribers probably late on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, so watch for that if you, you know, want to listen to it on Friday. Awesome. Excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first pages, February 23rd for our Patreon subscriber. If you want to submit your first pages or your queries for that matter, we're still accepting them at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Always. Um, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, Send it to us. We want to see your stuff. Um, we'll always, you know, I mean, these we do these shows every month. So if you've got something, we want to see it. Like, don't ever feel like you shouldn't send it to us. Always send. Even if it's a hot mess, because that's kind of what it's for. <laughs> exactly. Uh, second order of business. Last week, we had our first guest, Lily Anderson, on, and she was so lovely to offer us a signed copy of The Only Thing Worse Than Me Is You for one of our lucky listeners. And we have the winner who we got? Drum roll, please. Oh, yeah. Hold on. We have a gong. We have a gong for this. Um, I can't do the drum roll anywhere near the microphone. So, um. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. Our got? winner is Catherine Frazier. Catherine, we, <laughs> we will be emailing you to get your shipping information. And I am so excited. And I really hope you enjoy this book. Congratulations. Congratulations. And thank you again to Lily for both coming on the show and giving us a book to give away. And for everyone that listened and enjoyed it and wanted to enter, because that's just lovely. And thank you to you, Laura. You know what? You're the real real MVP here. I'm the real hero. (laughs) Thank you. I told you what a raffle copter was. Yeah, you did tell me what a... I don't want it. It feels like a drone or something. It's going to come kill me. (laughs) Third order of business. We have a fun... Uh, we have a fun announcement for next week's episode. Uh-huh. Tell the people, Eric. Well, we've got Carly Silver coming on. She's an assistant editor at Harlequin. She uh, edits a lot of women's fiction and romance, and it sounds like she's going to have some stories for us too, huh? Yep, yep, and some other stuff, and we're we're not going to leak anymore because you have to <laughs> actually tune in. But it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, we've got, I mean, I think the, you know, I'm excited that we're having guests come on now. I really, again, as always, it's just great that someone else is talking other than us, probably. <laughs> However, um, now we're going to lead us, in, lead yeah, you Yeah, which is into, a perfect segue into us talking. <laughs> for the entire episode. Yeah. All right, let's hit the people with our first item. So <laughs> the, the news item that we have today is... Um, a continuation of one it's we've con- been touching on. It's a continuation of one we've been touching on, which bums me out a little bit because I'm tired of having to deal with this concept and this person. Um, but yet here we are. And if we are going to be a show that talks about book news, this is the book news. Um, so <laughs> we have to talk about it in its own way, even though, um, you know, like I, like I think we agree, we've touched on this stuff before. But all of that is to say, that the literary agent for Milo Yiannopoulos, um, he's a guy named Thomas Flannery Jr. Um, he has written an op-ed in Publishers Weekly, uh, which basically, uh, to my eyes here, 
uh, chastises those of us in publishing who think it's a bad idea for this guy to have a book, basically, right? Um, and he hits all the, you know, and we'll kind of go into some bits here, but he hits all the major talking points about free speech, about, you know, trying to um, suppress debate, about how who's the real enemy of, you know, voices and diversity, if we're, you know, all that kind of usual crap. Um, so <laughs> uh, why don't why don't you give us the the first little bit of... I've been continually shocked by the willingness of many in the publishing industry to stifle Milo's opinions. The right to speak freely, even if your opinions are unpopular, should be the bedrock of our industry. As Bill Maher said recently in response to the UC Berkeley riots, free speech should be something we own. The AAP, the ABA, Authors Guild, CBLDF... FTRF, Index on Censorship, <laughs> NCAC. I'll be honest, I don't know any of these acronyms. And NCTE. <laughs> <laughs> All agree with me. Unfortunately, many in publishing do not heed their sound and sage words. Okay, so um, <clears throat> this guy is shocked that people don't like Milo, which is the first sign that you're dealing with a real road scholar here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, and he also, you know, again, is you get the same line, right? The right to speak freely, even if your opinions are unpopular, should be the bedrock of our industry. And it is. It is. The, I mean, no one is – again, it's the same thing we've always said, and I know that we're drilling it, but we're going to drill it again. The right to free speech is not the same thing as saying I have to give you $250,000 for a book deal. It's not the same thing. This guy saying seems to I think have it is. to listen. Yeah, and then he says that, um, you know, all these different author organizations kind of jump in and they, they all agree with me. Um, but do you know what they agree on? They Eric? agree that free speech should exist. They don't yes. agree that my... <laughs> and they agree that censorship is a bad thing. But guess what? Yeah. The public and the people, other people, like real human beings in this industry, yeah. saying that they don't want this book and they condemn Simon & Schuster for publishing this book, that is not censorship. Yeah. No, it's... Again, it's the same thing. And they also gives us... And we're going to get to Bill Maher here in a second because... Um, Milo was on Bill Maher, which again, you know, I, I hear a lot from people who uh, listen to the show, who I talk to in life, and they say, I don't know, if it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't know who this Milo guy was. And it's like, why, what if we just ignored him he would, and he would just go away? And that's true, except no one's ignoring him. And now he's off the internet. Now he's on to, you know, he was the prime, he was the first primetime interview on Bill Maher the other night. Like, this is a person who actually does exist out in the world now because people couldn't stop paying attention to him. Um, and I don't know, like to me, the idea that this guy thinks that, um, it's somehow shocking that we don't want to hear from him or even, you know, again, he, you know, he does the, um, you know, free speech should be something we own. Who's we and what are we not owning? You know, like free speech is something we, I guess he means the publishing industry. That's certainly not how Bill Maher meant it. Bill Maher isn't in publishing. So he's like misattributing these quotes and then misattributing these organizations to agree with him on something they like, I don't know. It's just all very strange to me. Um, but <laughs> why, don't, why don't you keep going? To be clear, I do not agree with everything Milo says. As the co-writer of transsexual icon Amanda Lepore's forthcoming memoir, I take particular issue with the things he said about the transgender community. Uh -huh. However, I have no desire to silence his opinion. On the contrary, whenever I have dinner with Milo, I debate him on this topic. <laughs> hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, So... <laughs> Was, I'm picturing the scene here, right? Like a nice candlelit, candlelit dinner, dinner where these two guys are – where like these two guys are like what? Arguing about trans rights or something? Like uh, like an author meeting? God forbid they're seen as people. <laughs> it's, it just seems like 
Like, this is all just absurd. And again, like I do not agree with everything Milo says. And one thing you're going to not see in this piece anywhere is a single listing of something that he does agree with Milo saying. Um, because that's the thing with all these guys, all these conservatives and people like uh, Thomas, who I don't think identifies explicitly as a conservative, um, who they can never name the thing they think should be being argued, you know. It's never, I think that this view is good. And, and I wish they would just say that sometimes. You know, it's like, just come out and say it, man. Like, don't do this, like, dog and pony show where it's like, well, I don't agree with him on everything. It's like, well, what do you? Like, I, no one ever has an answer to that for me. It's like, which parts do you agree with? My favorite part of the, and we didn't get to it, but the end of this paragraph is, this is what, so he he's debating Milo over candlelit yeah. dinners yeah, so about the existence <laughs> of, of trans people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then at the end he says, this is what we as purveyors of intellectual thought are supposed to do. Okay, so yeah, um, my ro- <laughs> my job as literary agent is apparently to uh, sit with uh, transphobes in restaurants and argue and go, how dare you, sir? You know, like this is not... It's just incoherent to me. And again, like what? which parts are you good with? Because the part all these people are only ever good with is, well, I think he should be allowed to say whatever he wants. And it's it's just weak, and we're going to see that it's weak. But it, so <laughs> It is. It, it is. And so the, so the last paragraph, and, you know, the rest of this is just absolutely it's him compla- It's him complaining that, like, Milo got banned from Twitter. And that and th- Milo is charismatic, and then Woody, that, like, leading the charge against Leslie Jones was unkind. Oh, yeah, and Woody yeah. said, Woody said um, this, is a, this is a funny sentence to me. Milo is provocative and charismatic, which has put a huge target on his back. Yeah, because everybody hates people who are provocative and charismatic. People <laughs> like that, especially book people. Like, that doesn't put a target on your back. That that gets like, you a check, like and exactly. like, and which is exactly what's exactly. happened. Which is exactly what's happened. Oh, the oppressed, charismatic, and provocative people of this world. Ugh. All right. So, so the last the last bit is: as a gay man, I am proud of Milo Yiannopoulos for saying things about gay culture I have often thought, but never before heard uttered in public. And that, to me, is my job as a literary agent: to find writers with talent, new ideas, and platforms, and share them with the world. You may not like what Milo has to say or how he says it, but as a member of the publishing community, you should be extremely cautious of your willingness to shut down a book you haven't even read, unless, of course, you're scared you might agree with him. I would just like to take this moment to point out <laughs> that judging books that we haven't read is literally our job. I do that like for hours a day, yeah. Yeah, that is like literally in our job description. It yeah. is. Um, so. The bit at the end here, too, unless, of course, you're scared you might agree with him. It's like this – that's another one of those things where someone doesn't really have a point other than they're mad that you got mad. And so they're just like trying to take – they're trying to like appropriate the same edginess that their like client has. You know, It's like he knows that Milo is like particularly good at trolling and this guy isn't. This guy's kind of just a, a guy trying to ride those coattails and, in my opinion, has been completely worked over by Milo to his own purposes. Um, but at the end here, you've got this bit, um, unless you're scared, you might agree with him. Like, way to, like, throw in your token little bit of edginess yourself, man. Like, this is, like, oh, man, what if I do agree that, you know, Muslims shouldn't exist? Like, man, I can't imagine. I better go take a walk. Like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> my, my, my question is I've been speculating so much what Milo has said about gay culture that Thomas Flannery Jr. agrees with. Like, what, what? horrible, horrible thing does he think about his own community well, it's, that... Like, the, fact that, the fact that you even have to ask 
what he agrees because he never says. And none of these people ever say. They try to use the free speech argument as a like shield to not actually have to give the thing they're secretly fighting for. And it's, again, it's this silly equation of platform and free speech. And I, I don't know. I, I was a, you know, I'm a sucker for punishment, and I watched Bill Maher the oh, other day. Oh, God, I did And you, it's not a coincidence that this guy quotes him earlier in this piece because I, you can see they're of a like mind, and they were both similarly worked over by Milo, who at the very least is very good at taking advantage of people like this who don't really have the critical backbone to um, decide that he's evil and just use them for advancement in his own ideas. Because um, he's too busy using his intellectual heft <laughs> to debate him over dinner. Right, rather yeah, than, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> rather so, than applying moral, but, moral ideas. But so there was, a bit, there was a bit in Bill Maher from Milo that, and again, well, I don't want to talk about stuff other than the books here, but there was a bit that felt particularly instructive on this. Um, there was a guy that was supposed to be on that episode, a guy named Jeremy Scahill. He's a reporter for uh, The Intercept, I think, and he decided to not be on the show when he heard that Milo was going to be on. He, and he released a statement saying, I don't want to be on Bill's show if he's going to also have this guy on, and it was this whole thing. And so Milo came on, and he addressed it, and he said, Bill, the one thing I think you and I can agree on is that if you don't show up to debate, you lose. And it's this trick that he pulls on everybody he talks to. He pulled it on this guy, this agent here. He pulled it on Bill Maher, and he's going to pull it on everybody that keeps listening to him, where he says, you have to debate me, you have to debate me, you have to debate me, and if you don't, you lose. And the hidden little Trojan horse there is that it's a given that he gets to show up. And you're never going to change his mind. It's just a waste of, it's just a waste of time. It is. like You're not going to ever change his mind. You're not ever going to convince him that being a troll is a bad thing. Well, it's it's not even about being a troll. Lots of people are trolls. That's not necessarily what matters. It's just the the idea that he's it's he's just kind of advancing himself on this idea that just because he exists, he gets to talk on your show, and everybody keeps buying it. And Simon and Schuster bought it, and Bill Maher bought it, and this agent bought it, and it's just it's foolishness, and it is foolishness, and I hate talking about it, but it keeps happening again and again and again and again. Well, it's because everybody and, is equating free speech and having a platform. We don't need to give him a platform yeah. because he's yelling about free speech. It's a given that he gets to show up and that people are going to give him bandwidth on TV and in newspapers and in publishing now. But also what that means is that other people are getting to ride his coattails and they're getting to do this by amplifying him. And vice versa. You know, I I am looking at this article very skeptically by Thomas Flannery Jr., mm -hmm. who has been very, very silent across this whole deal and all of this muck that he's been working with this man for a year. And he only comes out and says, hey, I am Milo's agent. I yeah. I guess kind of vaguely agree with things that he's doing. But he won't tell us what. No, he won't yeah. tell us what. But he comes out swinging, specifically mentioning in two different areas his upcoming book, <laughs> yeah. like his co-written memoir yeah. that's coming out, which is coming out, as we learn in the byline, in April by Reagan Arts. Um, and it, it feels <laughs> very self-serving to me. Yeah. It just, it, you know, he's harping on us about being bad literary agents and about how he's supposed to bring these new ideas Purveyors into the Purveyors of intellectual thought, yeah. And, and then this feels very much like a vaguely conservative support trumpet piece and I just a, wish an that, ad <laughs> i just wish that when these people told me that i needed to listen to this guy i wish they would just say what it is they liked about him yes like honestly if you think like it's just cowardly 
it's just weak, man. Like if you've got some opinion that you think belongs in the mainstream, just tell me what it is. Because it isn't free speech, and we know it isn't free speech because this guy's smarter than this guy. This, he can't possibly be this dumb. Like, and none of these people are, usually. <laughs> uh, but, like, do you see what I'm saying, though, where, like, Milo keeps making this argument that if you don't debate me, you lose by default. It incites people into debating him, and what, they're, what they've already lost is the fact that you've allowed him to show up. Yeah. And it's just silly because he keeps getting to show up, and he keeps getting to go on things, and... Um, you know, now we're here. Now we're here and he's the lead interview on a major uh, news show and he's the, um, I don't know, he's got a big book deal and now his agents in this. Speaking of this piece, by the way, I feel like we should just point out that Publishers Marketplace isn't exactly... Publishers Weekly. Ex- excuse me. Publishers Weekly, not Publishers Marketplace. Uh, Publishers Weekly is very much like a problem here too because they publish this piece they published a piece in response to this piece they publish like they're just like having this whole stupid argument on their site even though all of it is completely disingenuous none of it has any sort of point and if like again if like book media had any sort of back sort of like backbone at all they would say actually you don't get to publish your stupid op-ed about this guy actually being good there's already you know, been enough like we've seen like we all, there's nothing new in this argument here and the only reason they ran it is because they knew it would generate clicks and then they and then they decided to run a piece in response to it and it's just like you're just capitalizing on it's just this whole big ecosystem like <laughs> circling around this guy with terrible bigoted opinions you know and it's frustrating because, like, here we are talking about it too, but... But it's it's Publishers Weekly, you know, is allowed to have an editorial viewpoint. They're allowed to make decisions based on what gets in there and what doesn't. And there's no reason that this should well, have it's gotten just, in Well, it's just if there. this is... And I'm not even talking about the, the politics of it, right? I'm talking about if you are a publishing magazine and you think that what this man has written is a credible argument in the free speech debate... Then you don't get to be a publishing magazine anymore because it's complete garbage. Like, and there's not a single argument in there, <laughs> not a single. Well, the one. argument is that anyone gets to say whatever they want, and I have to show up and go to dinner with him to hear it. And also, he gets to have two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I'm pretty sure that's in the Bill of Rights somewhere. So somewhere, yeah, somewhere. Um, <laughs> Even though he's British, yeah. yes. But let's 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 move on from this drivel. So we've got something fun that's yeah. not drivel. We yeah. have our James Patterson book of the week. <laughs> Thank God for this. I was getting cranky. I need this. Thank God for James yeah. Patterson and his book shots. Yeah. Is this a book shot? This is a book shot. Good. Good. So this book yeah. uh, is already out. Lucky You came okay. out last week. Okay. It is called French Twist. Oh. And it is a Detective Luke Moncrief mystery. So this is part of a series. Luke Mon- We have got a series by a guy named... or. On Luke Moncrief? Yes. It's L-U-C, so he's French. Oh. Clearly, as you can tell from the title, How culture French you? twist. Yeah, what do we got? Who is killing New York's most beautiful women? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every single... Didn't we read another one where it was all about like the rich people dying? Yes. Yeah, okay. Now there's rich and now there's beautiful. They're not always the same. Wow. What? How classist of me. <laughs> I'll do better. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Who is killing New York's most beautiful women? 
gorgeous women are dropping dead at upscale department stores. Oh, I guess you were right. They are rich. Yeah, see. At upscale department stores in New York City, Detective Luke Moncrief and Detective Catherine Burke are close to solving the mystery, but looks can be deceiving. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. I'm excited for this. Oh, man. Yeah. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Um, I don't know what we would do without you. I would, yeah, I mean, hopefully he's considering the book shot that I wrote him, though. The feedback on that was pretty ne- negative, negative across the board. It was very negative. I got a lot, I got a lot of text messages about that, <laughs> about that little creative writing assignment of mine. Well, I look forward to reading about uh, Luke Moncrief and Catherine Burke. I hope there's kissing involved. Only in, like, the last chapter. Um, That's enough. So... Are we ready for we for are thing ready today? Um, <laughs> so this is one. This is a topic that really doesn't matter all that much, frankly, but it gets me riled up each time because I find so much of it so silly, and it doesn't have to be silly. And I am talking, of course, about the book world and the writing world on social media. Um, in that, I think that most of it is trash. <laughs> Who's surprised uh, by that yeah, thought? Um, My arm is not raised. Yeah, so. Um, I got especially mad about this and was deciding it was time to do something on the show about it. Uh, finally, when the other day there was like a, some Twitter event, I think it was a manuscript wish list thing where all the agents, you know, use the hashtag and tweet all the books they want and all the writers respond. And it's hashtag all. MSWL. Yeah. By the way. Um, and I participated in everything, but like, it just... I got up in the morning and I like got my coffee and was like, oh, look at this. I get to spend – I get to actually work on Twitter today as opposed to like doing the usual just fuck around I did all day in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I got in there and I sent a few little things I was looking for and <clears throat> I started scrolling through everybody else's and – it just enraged me. <laughs> why did it enrage you? Well, because just, I love Manuscript Wish why? Day. Well, you – because I don't like – I don't like book Twitter. And I'll tell you why. Mostly because I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's completely humorless to start, and we can talk about why that is in a minute. Um, I think it's completely humorless, and I think it's entirely designed to just uh, be a virtue signaling platform uh, for people trying to sound like they are particularly woke or particularly, um, I don't know, cultured or smart or on the right team, you know, so to speak. Or just a good little writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me... I just I don't I wish that it could be more because I feel that there's just no there's no humor here there's no and this this obviously extends past uh, manuscript wish list but like it's been one cat gift too many man like <laughs> I, I've had enough of like the same three little writer jokes about like cats and reading and like being inside and that mixed with like the mo- I mean you've said this before what's the most popular thing you as a literary agent could tweet about. The most popular thing I ever tweet is that I'm going through my inbox. It's live tweeting your emails. Literally live tweeting my emails. And I think that sucks. And I think about like enjoying social media and all the accounts that I like and the things that um, are I find to be very funny. And I don't think I'm alone in this. It's not like I have particularly strange tastes. Um, and I just I, – and I guess my question to you, Laura, is why does book media have to be so unfunny and so just like – Completely devoid of irony, devoid of real punchlines, devoid of edge of any kind. Uh, when, especially since this is, these are supposed to be the creative people, right? These are the writers. You know, how come no one can tell a goddamn joke? Is my point. 
so I've I've been thinking about this since yeah. you brought it up to me because I happen to love book Twitter. Okay. I love it with all of my little I'm heart. I'm sure you do. Let's hear it. <laughs> so you I think, are, well, you are someone who is perfectly at home tweeting out pictures of your cat and talking about your email. So yes, I'm sure yes, I am. You fit right in. But okay, so I've been thinking about this, and I think we need to break it down a little bit. Uh-huh. And I think one of the, the first thing that we kind of need to tackle is that writers talking about writing, or agents talking about agenting, or editors talking about editing, or whatever. There's always that sense of it's either all commiserating about how awful it is or it's unnaturally positive. Like you can do it. Yeah. Um, And, and like, we all know that this is a hard industry. Like we all know that writing sucks. We all know that editing is hard. We all know that like agents are overworked and editors are over and like, it doesn't matter. Right. But people still need to talk about it anyway. And I'm more inclined Eric to give them a pass for that because it's a very solitary thing. And I am more inclined to give them a little bit of space to talk about how they're they're stuck or that they just did a, like a really good chapter or something because they need that community. Sure. But so well, I think what you're talking about there is like this whole thing where anytime a writer does anything, they tweet like just finished a chapter or like some – you know, like bit. that's an exciting thing. Of course, you text me <laughs> no. whenever you finish a chapter. <laughs> right, that's different than a tweet. Um, <laughs> but it's just to me, I don't understand why we have to talk so literally about what we're doing. Maybe that's the way I want to put it. It's like the only thing agents ever type out on their you know sites, and the only thing, and I guess book publishers are separate from this because those are like corporations often. But like, we can only ever talk about the exact task at hand and we can only use the same little language over and over and over again. We have to say, I just finished a, you know, a chapter. I just got done writing. This bit is particularly hard. And like all the things you just described to me, um, you know, just this life that's kind of like, you know, it, it is difficult, but so is every field and every other field manages to tell jokes about other stuff sometimes. And like, I don't know why... Like all the things you just described were not an argument for why there's any humor involved in any of this. Like basically what you just described was the worst version of water cooler talk at any (laughs) office. It's like everyone's like vaguely, you know, irritated and tired and like wants a little bit of sympathy. And so they go to the proverbial water cooler and they talk it out instead of having to go back to their desk. The Twitter cooler. It, It kind of is. And it's like, I don't know, like you look at, for instance, like journalists who are insufferable in their own way on the internet, but at least they manage to like tell jokes about other stuff sometimes. So, so talk to me about this humor because I, I, you know, like we, we can harp on that positive tone or like the commiseration water cooler thing. Well, let's do the tone. Let's do you, the you tone know, but for a second. I, I'm interested about the, the tone, the humor. Let's, yeah. So the first thing I think is that everyone is just so unnaturally positive on, <laughs> on writer Twitter, which is funny because otherwise Twitter is this scathing mass of negativity. You don't think and, that complaining about like having <laughs> such a hard time writing is p- no because it's all it's all just like because and then it's like nineteen responses about how you can do it, man, and it's oh, like that's a good point, and it just kind of turns into this like hug session that apart from anything is just boring, isn't it boring? Like why? Like for instance, like what you talk about, like you do all those, you know, you do like your five hundred queries and you do your things. That's like educational, that. and it's like is that interesting is that really what people want like i no, know it's that- not interesting it's educational there's <laughs> very different yeah but like surely we can do better and i want to and i want to fix this and i guess like in terms of the humor the thing that i see as being the real problem is that 
no one in the writing world and this is obviously is not true of the actual writing world but no one like who's like regularly tweeting online has any sense of like irony whatsoever to me like it's all all the jokes are basically are basically this it's like a merriam webster quote like this is every this is every twitter joke there are two variants right the first one is like the merriam webster dictionary sending out something um like you know they're they're That's kind they're, of a burn right, they did that know. today with the ap style guide Sure. Yeah. No, they've just been, you know, they like send something out like truth, you know, as like one of their words of the day. And then like every single writer has to like quote tweet it and be like, looks like someone should get the president a copy of the dictionary. And then <laughs> it's like and it's like everyone just fucking loves it as though like that's the funniest thing anyone has ever said. And <laughs> it's, it's maddening, man. OK, that's and variation it, one. What's variation uh, yeah, two? Variation two is just like a cat with a book on its head. And we're That's all supposed adorable. to laugh at that. Or like, you know, like a picture of your dog and be like, this is my reading partner. <laughs> and like, that's the other joke is like a picture of an animal. And what do you have against and dogs? I have nothing against They're dogs. They're good dogs, and Brent. See, and see, <laughs> yeah. And see, you're doing, you're doing the thing. It's I am doing it. Like it's that it, there's just no humor to it. And if you question the fact that maybe it's kind of weird that all the only thing that the supposedly most creative people on earth talk about is like pictures of their cats and like dictionary quotes. It everyone's like, oh, because that's the other mode, right? It's either weird, really weird positivity or like this mobbed up, like sort of misplaced anger at nothing. And it's like, surely, surely we can do better than that. And I don't know. Like, I've been thinking about why. I mean, I, clearly I'm not bothered by this like you are. And I quite enjoy the experience of writer Twitter. <laughs> I have enough humor in my Twitter where, you know, who knows? Well, but, where do you get, so where do you get your humor? Um, I get my humor from the, a lot of like joke bots basically. So like there's, there's like my favorite one is the Jeffrey Chaucer Twitter one. Yeah. You got different tastes. Well, I think yours are funny too, (laughs) but you know, I I actually go to your Twitter account for humor. Well, mostly I'm very funny, but most, but I'm not very funny. I'm mostly tweet. I'm mostly like. Sending out things from other spaces of the internet. Yeah, that I know. I That's why are, I go to you. That I think are funny, and they definitely aren't coming from people in publishing. And I guess I just I thought of why that is, though. Yeah, why is that? I Tell thought me. of why that is, and mm-hmm. so I think this goes back to what we were talking a little bit about platform um, mm-hmm. with regards to to Milo and you know platform versus pl- free speech, etc. Um, social media has made people very accessible and they made people very visible and when you're selling your words you know that's that's an important commodity but visibility and accessibility does not equal platform even though everybody in publishing pretends it does like even i do that you know when i'm thinking Mm -hmm. about signing a new agent i go onto twitter and look to see how many followers they have yeah you know i'm not like but then again i hear things from publicists all the time or salespeople or whatever saying you know like Social media doesn't sell any books or it sells very few. I mean, it might like raise awareness about something, but it's not what gets them to buy it. You know, and I think I think the platform, the idea that social media is the end all be all, you have to be accessible and you have to be palatable, specifically palatable. Palatable is a great word for this because everyone is in such a rush to try to be agreeable and palatable that everyone just ends up vanilla. Yeah. And so I think that's what it is, you know, especially for new writers, which I think you can agree the bulk of Twitter is, 
Yeah. Um, with new or, you know, not famous writers, you know, that palatability is is the default because, you know, it's a lot easier to tweet a picture of a cat falling asleep on a book than it is to, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm mad just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> than it is to, you know, criticize yeah. something about you know, the industry or a, a book from a fellow writer, et cetera. No, I'm not saying be mean to each other. Not That's not what mean, I'm saying. Or I, even like be critical of things. I'm just saying like surely we could put a little more originality into some of the things that get said. And the only reason I the only reason I care at all, um, because I, I really wouldn't. Obviously this is up to this point a pretty like an objectively stupid conversation, right? Like we're just like complaining about people's tweets, which is you're complaining about people's <laughs> tweets. You're defending the tweets, sure. Um, but the problem with it for me is that it ends up because everyone is in such a rush to be so vanilla. Because you, as you've said, there's this incentive to be vanilla because you want to be accessible and you want to fit in, and it becomes this kind of self-perpetuating cycle. Is it becomes this thing where it's sort of widely assumed that everyone just sort of thinks the same thing. Do you ever see that many divergent opinions? On writer Twitter, I don't. I mean, I see opinions you... about the book Divergent. <laughs> see, that was a joke. Was yeah, but okay, but that was funny. That was <laughs> that was funnier than anything I've seen on the internet in like days. Um, <sighs> well, um, so <laughs> so, but like, do you see what I'm saying though? When when people quit trying to actually tell jokes or actually give opinions that matter, it's everyone starts to just kind of sound the same. And when everyone starts to sound the same, you start to assume what everybody thinks. And yeah. so like our friend uh, Thomas Flannery earlier from the agent piece, um, he, you know, he's wrong about a lot of stuff. But one thing he is right about is there is this sort of just like basic bland version of centrist liberalism that everyone in the book world assumes everyone else has. And it is it is kind of silly and it is kind of I don't know I mean harmful is the wrong word but it is it's certainly not useful and it's propagated by the fact that no one is willing to do anything other than just speak in the very basic like I don't know mostly kind of blandly like novocained up positive like cat pictures that kind of subsist for what it should be like the creative field like imagine I mean I guess the way I often think about it is like none of my favorite writers are on Twitter, really. Like, none of them are. Mm. Because it's an inherently silly place that kind of gets devoid of, of creativity, you know? Like, and if they, and they, I feel like maybe they recognize that if they were to start tweeting or something, it would just kind of get silly and dumb. And I w think that that's, I think that that's, a I mean, I mean, not, a, I was going to say a real problem, but it's not a real problem. It's a fake problem, but it is a problem. And I feel like it could get fixed by just people being a little bit more willing to be a little bit something other than, just vanilla. I would like to point out an area specifically of book Twitter where that doesn't happen and there are negative consequences. Sure. So we've we've talked about, you know, angry YA Twitter online, but this is not a specifically angry YA Twitter thing. It's specifically um, YA Twitter subset where the, the people in it are women writers of color. Uh -huh. specifically. Uh -huh. And there there is something really magical I think about that that group of people on Twitter. Why? I think because because they're doing what you're asking. <clears throat> you know, they're the ones that aren't just letting people be blandly leftist and positive and whatever. You know, they're the ones when well, they liberal, see something liberal. When they see something that is 
is is fucked up about publishing they call it out yeah you know and and oftentimes with with a great risk to themselves um and and so that that okay, well that sounds interesting it is it's fascinating and and they just get so much shit you know there's you know there's there's so many and there's so many that are really great and but that's an exception not the rule it and is it's kind it of an is, exception that is, proves the rule it is the exception and i think you know i think that gets back to what we're talking about about with virtue signaling you know there's the virtue signaling that's very very bland of yay i'm writing a book or yay this book is so hard look at how authentic of a writer i am that sort of thing like that's all of that's you know that's the bland virtue signaling but but i think a huge part of twitter now especially the area of writer twitter that i'm in is the virtue signaling about being woke or whatever okay so let's let's move to that that's a good – it's probably a good thing to transition to again because this this bit um, I think does matter. This – you know, we can talk about how bad book people are at telling jokes or good in your wrong opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, this next bit um, I do think matters in terms of how book people are talking to each other. And it does kind of get back to my concept that eventually everyone is simply trying to sound the same and is assuming everyone else thinks the same. Um this, you know, this sort of virtue, the virtue signaling. Why don't you tell us, um, do you have like a, just a definition of virtue signaling that you could give us? Yeah. So, uh, there's, there's a writer that I follow a little bit named Mia McKenzie who coined the term, term ally theater, which I think is a very, very similar yeah. thing. So yeah. virtue signaling is basically trumpeting to the world, like how good you are. So, you know, it's performative. It's performative. It's like getting out it's like getting outraged in a public space in a manner that makes sure everyone sees that you're outraged so that they can then look at you and believe that you have principles. Yeah. Right? And so what the, what the big thing is right now is with, <clears throat> you know, saying that you're an ally to writers of color or to GLBTQ folks or, you know, whoever. Um, religious minorities for, you know, or, or whatever. So that's, it's kind of that, that ally theater idea, which is, which is one of the reason why the, the interesting corner of women of color writers, they get so much shit. It's not actually from people like Milo Yiannopoulos. It's from people who see themselves as allies and then they get, you know, called out or they get criticized and then that per- that performative nature of how they're presenting themselves in the world starts to crumble yeah and then that's when people get mad well so it gets it gets what you're speaking to there is that this group of people who you're saying are very authentic in the way they talk about books and writing on the internet um it starts to kind of break apart the facades that people sort of put together as a means of trying to sound super enlightened um and and that's where i get that's where I get genuinely irritated. Um, you see it a lot with, I don't know, like, so going back to that day that made me so mad, Manuscript Wishlist Day. Mm-hmm. I saw so many agents tweeting out that they wanted, you know, everyone was, all the books that they wanted was like, I want a book that has characters that were hashtag resisting. And it's like, what are we doing here? Like, if you're going to tell me that, like, all you're really, like, that doesn't mean anything. All you're doing is trying to just use some trendy, like, 
I don't know, progressive hashtag to like say that you're a part of it, to just build your own online brand, like to say that you want a character who resists, like that could mean literally anything. It's not a request for a book. It's a pointing out that you like this thing. And it's like, I can't imagine being someone who looks at what's happening in, and people do this and do not tell me people don't do this. It looks at the things happening in the world, like, you know, this immigration ban, for instance, um, when it came down and it's obviously in flux right now and everything, but like, um, when that came out, how many different agents were like, they somehow managed to work that into their own personal, like literary brands. You know, they were suddenly like, you got to, you know, use your, you know, start sending me things with the word resist in them or start, they made it somehow about, like they made the fact that, um, immigrants were being banned at the borders of our country into some chance to talk about their own emails, which is like the worst of all possible things here. Because like, again, all the, the only thing agents really tweet about with any sort of engagement is the fact that they're answering emails. And so to take that tired paradigm and pair it with the fact that, you know, actual harmful things are happening to people in the world, it just feels really strange to me. So I'm going to interrupt you here and say that, well, it wasn't about the immigrant thing, but with um, the the women's march and the uptick in social demonstrations, I did ask for books about that yeah. because like it excites me to have books, especially because I do kidlet. It excites me to have books about people who can change the world, even though they didn't think that they could because they're small or whatever, you know, and and you're right that it is very much. I mean, it's I've always liked that stuff. I mean, I that's that's why all well, of the dystopian I'm not, I'm stuff really has happened. Talk, so but but <laughs> I'm not talking about you. I know you. Well, like, no, I know. But I'm but all I'm saying yeah. is that, you know, it, it makes sense from a business position to take a look at something that's happening in the world and then has captured captured the public consciousness and say, hey, we could not only, you know, make money off of this idea, but we could amplify the idea itself by putting more work out there mm -hmm. that has that. And you know, what where I think we get into the problem is that you know what we were talking a little bit before about that that performative nature of that wokeness kind of breaking down and it's when people want to do it just because it's trendy. You know, I see people talking about diversity as a trend in publishing. Yeah. Me and too. and here's here's a little anecdote that that you know i think gets back at eric your kind of deep-seated idea that publishing is not actually as liberal as we think it is uh -huh. when i started as an agent in 2013 i went to new york for the first time yeah. and you know i was all excited and i had you know sparkles in my eyes and i was really excited about building my list and my brand and whatever and i started meeting with editors for the first time mm -hmm. and Many, many times I had meetings with editors in that like four days or whatever. I think I had maybe 20, 25 meetings where yeah. I would say, so my list, I want to represent books that are diverse and feminist, right? Uh -huh. That's what I said. And in 2013, a lot of the time I got a, oh, that's nice. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Fast forward to 2017. Guess what? People are going I absolutely want this. I'm so excited. This is one of my most favorite things. And that's not to, you know, say that like that hipster thing that like people can't genuinely well, that's be a good interested. Thing, right? Like what it's you just described thing. is a good thing that people would move in that direction. What I think you're what I think you might be mad about is the fact that people are pretending to have been there the entire time and are pretending to 
make it like their personal thing when really they're being reactionary. Well, I don't I don't care if people have been there the entire time. You know, I'm not like a hipster who's mad at a band that got popular. <laughs> you know, like yeah. if more people are being treated like humans, that's really good. But right. what I'm worried about is for people who are writing these books and they're coming into this industry and like I I want like you can't ever tell who's just reactionary in terms of, you know, seeing the opportunity to make money and people who are actually passionate about it. And one thing, you know, we had a writer ask us on on Twitter this week, mm-hmm. ask a question to Print Run mm-hmm. about so saying that they were an own voices author. I'm not sure what their book is about and I'm not sure what in terms of own voices they are. I think they might be of color. I'm not entirely certain. But they were saying I I want it like this is an own voices book, but how do I communicate that? And I see kind of like the problem, which isn't isn't really a problem because it means good things that are happening. But the problem is, is that this author is concerned, at least on some level, about signaling their own own voices status in their book, like right. as a way to sell because their they're book. being boxed into they're being boxed into an identity. Right. And so one thing I'm concerned about is, you know, if this is the one thing that we're focusing on as as publishing professionals, I'm really worried, you know, and I'm worried about this about myself, too. I ask myself this all the time. But, you know, are we in an effort to come across as as woke and in our attempt to be more than just virtual virtue signaling or maybe just virtue signaling? Are we asking writers to basically trumpet their own exoticness to us and basically fetishize their own existence so that we can say that we have an own voices book on our list. I think it's I think the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And you might be more um, optimistic about what people are doing than me, but yeah, I think you kind of just touched on there what my problem is. Like you tell this story about going and meeting with editors and doing all this kind of legwork and trying to build this list into something that's all really, really good. And also, none of it has anything to do with tweeting. No, it's all true. actual real work. Like, and that's what I, th- I think maybe where we're differing here is you're, confla- you're like conflating the two things. Like, I'm not saying that a real effort, to, like obviously the underlying principles we're getting at here I think are really, really important. What I'm saying is that sitting at your desk and sending out a tweet saying, hey, I really like books written by people of color, I think that that's... I think I have a right to have my eyebrow up at that because I think that that's a little bit lazy and I think that it's a little bit of a move meant to signal to all your little friends for likes and retweets that you are someone who's um, you know down with the cause even if you yourself aren't putting anything into the cause other than your own tweet and like to me um, like I you know I don't I can't claim to be some giant um, you know, warrior for the diverse book cause. I mean, I care about it and I, you know, I hope to contribute to it in any way that I can as an agent. But like, um, I do, I think, you know, I would approach the problem a lot differently. And I do approach the problem a lot differently in my own life. And it's like, the way I do it is actually go out and try to read some of these people, go out and be proactive, like go find, um, Go find a place where, you know, writers of color are being published and writing. You know, go make an effort to actually go read them. Make an effort to understand what they like to read. Make an effort to understand the actual, you know, 
diverse writing community instead of doing the absolute last laziest thing you could do, which is just say, come to me because I can't find you. Like so often that's what I think these tweets are. It's the saying, you know, when you send out a little thing on the Internet saying if you're, um, you know, if you're black, I want you to write a book for me. There's also something hidden in there that says, I don't know where you are because I, I'm not really bothering to look. And I might not sign you if I don't know that you're black. Exactly. You know, I it's, have, the, it's I this have, terrible yeah. version of identity-based acquisition. And it's also incredibly, I don't know, it just to me it inherently says that you aren't actually that interested in it. Because yeah. if you were, you would have already gone out and find those people. I mean, know? the idea, the idea of publishing more black authors like uh, like at the end of the day the sum is positive you know because more more people are being published right are they? well so that's my question I it's mean, like i don't i am not i am not convinced and i have no information to suggest that people tweeting out hashtags like own voices or whatever matters at i mean all, i find helping. a lot of my authors through twitter like okay. i will say that like i find a significant number of my authors okay. through twitter um and so how we use our slush piles and how we use social media for acquisitions is very different. But the one, you know, what I am constantly asking myself and, you know, I am I'm constantly working on and not not necessarily 100 percent effectively is, you know, I don't want to ever have to require an author to lay out their identity for me like in slash open their veins and say, look, look at, look at my history, look at my experience. Like if you're sending me a book about a kid who has PTSD because they've been raped, I don't want to have to know that you've been through that as well. Like I don't, like I don't, I want to be able to just like sign things on merit, but I also understand that it's really important that, you know, in, in a system that is, keeping marginalized people out, you know, we have to be more focused on making sure that those people get in. So I'm not, you know, I'm, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. So I guess to, to the, to the author who asked, you know, how do I communicate that I'm own voices? You have two options. Either you just come out right away and say, this is an own voices book, okay, but so- it, or, or you just, you just don't. And, and ideally you land with somebody who doesn't care. And that the, loves your book anyway. Can I make a mind? That's no. I think you're right. Yeah. You're right on that. But I want to make a point on just how you sound there. And this isn't has anything to do with you. But like, I bet you there are plenty of listeners to this show who think, um, who are a little lost right now because they're either not on Twitter or they're not on Twitter as much as we are, um, and they have no idea what you're talking about when you say own voices. They have. They don't know what it means it, because it doesn't mean anything outside of Twitter. <laughs> um, it's just a phrase that someone made up as like it's not – you know what I mean? Like it doesn't – like if I were just no one listening to you talk, I would have no idea what you're talking about. Like if someone were to say I'm an own voices writer, I still barely know what that means. Like and I, You know what I mean? Like it doesn't mean anything unless you're in this insular little world where it's a signal that it means something. Which is also and, a problem, yes. Yeah. And, and just for, for you guys to know, own voices – is so it's a hashtag own yeah. voices, which means that as a writer, you are marginalized in some way in writing a book also about that marginalization. Okay, so yeah, I mean, that's 
I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a good, succinct explanation. It's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's funny to actually talk about Twitter right? because <laughs> you sound so stupid. We sound very dumb. Um, but so well, I want to get back to something, though, and I, to bring it back to this seemingly innocuous idea of cat gifts and terrible jokes about Donald Trump um, that um, book Twitter is so prone to making. Um, you know, I think... You know, something I ask, especially when I talk to you, who has so much more faith in the online community um, of writers and um, really, you know, kind of book professionals more so than the individual writers. Um, why? You know, I've been thinking a lot about why am I not giving the benefit them the benefit out of the doubt on this virtue signal stuff? Like, why can't I just take them at the word and trust that they mean it? Um, and it's because I see what they talk about when they're not doing that. Because I see that they're terrible at making jokes. Because I see that they're not particularly insightful when it comes to you know the things they're saying. Otherwise, the fact that they're parroting everyone else's bad opinions, the fact that you know they have a certain like set of terrible Vox columnists that they send out you know the links for whenever they want to talk about some issue, the fact that they think SNL is still the funniest thing on television, the fact that like all this joke clearly it's Archer. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, so all this, all this joke stuff, you know, it doesn't matter, but it, but, and I, and I can get as mad as I want and who cares, but like, don't expect me to suddenly think you're brilliant when you start talking about serious things. Does that make sense? Like if you're doing nothing but sending me, you know, little pictures of kittens, you know, next to a, your bookshelf. Like, I'm not going to take the rest of your opinions very seriously when you suddenly decide to switch on the I'm a diverse, uh, you know, racial justice warrior. Like, it just, to me, those, you know, the ability to, like, make a good joke suggests a certain amount of intelligence and nuance with regard to all issues. And it's just hard to forget that the same people who, I don't know, are tweeting the loudest about you know, issues that feel so surface level to them are also the ones who are forwarding the worst columns that they read online and are the ones who um, can't do anything other than, you know, like quote tweet Donald Trump with like some like, I don't know, hypocrisy of his and think that they're somehow owning him. You know what I mean? Like it's just it, it this stuff feels connected to me. And I don't think that it's a particularly brazen point to make that someone who is bad at humor is also not necessarily great at, you know, real discussion. Like, I don't feel like that's too much of a bridge. I feel like that's a bridge that throughout culture and history, a lot of people have made. And it's like, I just feel like we're better than this. I feel like we, there's a lot more room for imagination, diversity of thought, um, edginess in the jokes and the humor. And I don't know, like, I just want it to be better because I know, I know that it could be. And I see every other wing of Twitter. Like, I love Twitter and every other like wing of it is so funny and so good and has me laughing so frequently and then we get back to book stuff and it's just like if I <laughs> like I mean I tweet about my emails you know every now and then because it's practically an experiment like if I put you know that's when I get followers right it's like when you start saying I'm like checking queries and everyone's like oh man better follow him and then as soon as I like say one thing that has nothing to do with books it's like I just like Every time Shed there's followers. a yeah, yeah, every yeah. time there's a tennis match yeah, yeah, on, no. you lose like Anytime, six. <laughs> that's true. Anytime there's a, yeah, or anything like that. If I have an opinion that isn't directly related to the fact that I've opened Gmail today, it's you know no one wants to hear about it. And it's not that I care that people hear from me, but it does speak to a certain level of 
very, very narrow topic making that I think book Twitter suffers from. And I don't know. I guess we'll see how it goes, but I feel like there's work to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's work on and off Twitter, but. Well, definitely off. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of really good stuff is happening off. Like I'm not at all suggesting that things happening, like I think publishing is doing a lot of really good stuff. I am speaking purely of its online presence. And I think that its online presence is a little bit silly. That's kind of my yeah. base point. I I think we're I see your point. I think I'm gonna continue being a little bit more optimistic than you. <laughs> but let's let's bring let's bring it home with the pub tip of the week, Eric. Okay. Um it's in the spirit of what we just were talking about is to avoid platitudes in your pitches. Um you had a funny one earlier, but like don't fill your queries with a bunch of stuff about how you, like me, love compelling literature. You know, it's like, just don't. Like, it's not useful. It doesn't tell me anything about your book. It doesn't impress me. I don't, like, my own, like, when you, like, parrot my, like, descriptive copy back at me, it just makes me kind of, like, wish I'd had different descriptive copy, you know? Um, my favorite thing is that I require my, especially my science fiction and fantasy submissions to pass either the Bechtel test or the Mako Mori test. And every time somebody references those tests in their query to me, yeah. they always say it passes, quote, with flying colors, <laughs> which I'm like, come on, you like you guys Just pick a different expression. Like literally your writers. Like, I don't know. Well, that's the thing. So what you just said is my exact point about the whole thing is you just touched on literally your writers. That's what I say every time I open the Internet on these people. Like and be cleverer. Hey, there you're you're saying what I'm saying, man. But like my point is, though, like stick to descriptive, be descriptive with what you're saying in your pitches. Like don't delve into what you think about books and the role they play in society like it's not helping you or why you wrote the book yeah exactly and all these like all these things that kind of are something other than telling me about your book just don't do it and it'll save you space and it'll give you room to maybe say something else descriptive about your book something specific and interesting yeah but just get away from the kind of verbose nothingness that people use because they think they need more words would be my take good tip Good tip. Yeah. Thank you all for for joining us <laughs> Thank on you for this. Listening to me, <laughs> have my meltdown about the internet today. on this episode. We'll most likely title <laughs> "Mad Online." Uh, remember, uh, late this Thursday, our first pages episode is dropping. <clears throat> um, giveaway winner. We are going to be contacting you, and stay tuned for next week's episode, wherein we will have a whole nother guest, where Eric probably won't be ranting nearly as much. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you.